0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Cook Pod, the podcast that won't stick to your face. I'm Peter Barrett. This week, I'm talking to Alice Firing, easily the most influential wine writer on natural wine in the country, way out ahead of that curve, instrumental in demystifying and elucidating this complex corner of the wine world. It's growing and changing fast, and she stays on top of it. Her newsletter, The Firing Line, is terrific. And if you want her tasting notes and advice on what to buy, that's where you need to find it. She's also alice.firing on Instagram. I spoke to her in her kitchen in Manhattan. We had a lovely talk. She made me tea. If there's one thing you can say about Alice Firing, she was into natural wine before it sold out. She has paved the way for a lot of people who know a lot less about the subject to get famous talking and writing about it. And we covered a lot of ground. We talked about her recent trip to Chile. We talked about the country of Georgia, about which she wrote For the Love of Wine. We covered sake a little bit and her real life escape from an actual serial killer. I shit you not. So stay tuned. You won't believe what happened next. After talking to Alice, I went uptown to the Guggenheim and checked out the Hilma af Klint show, which was really the perfect thing to do after our conversation because in much the same way that Alice was way out in front of natural wine and getting into it before anybody else, certainly in this country, Hilma af Klint invented just about every significant abstract painting movement of the 20th century before any of the names you may have learned in art history class even started working in those directions. Uh, It was really kind of extraordinary. I was kind of bummed out to find out that there had in fact been a show of her work at PS1 in 1989 that I missed. And I really regret that because she solved a lot of the problems that I would spend the next decade or so working on. Uh, It would have been hugely useful for me as a young painter to have seen all the different solutions and approaches she came up with in terms of everything from making geometry appear flat and volumetric at the same time, using kind of washy, rough, scumbly painted backdrops and color field areas to convey sense of space and depth, luminosity. It's really hard to overstate just how much she invented before any of the dudes like Malevich or Kandinsky let alone people who came much later, Morris Lewis, uh, Barnett Newman, it was just kind of jaw-dropping how much she accomplished before any of the people who would become famous for having invented abstraction, even though they did not. Anyway, it's a beautiful show. Uh, Even though the Guggenheim is fundamentally a shitty venue to hang paintings, because it's a goddamn curvy spiral. And if you look, especially from across the rotunda, if you look at the way they hang the paintings, they have to hang them at a fucking angle so that they appear level against the slanted floor and ceiling and curved walls uh, of this insane spaceship of a museum. I love the building. It's a shitty place to look at paintings. Anyway, I, I think that fundamentally it has to do with the kind of baseline dislike that architects have for painters. And the museum, I think, is hands down the most famous and eloquent monument to that sort of low-key rivalry. Anyway, go see the show. It's fantastic, really fantastic. And if you spent any time studying 20th century art, uh, it's going to blow your mind. Okay, so with that out of the way, here's my talk with Alice at her kitchen table in Manhattan on a chilly January day, but fortified with delicious hot tea. pants. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, they're really warm.
1: Yeah, I figured. Alright, what do you want to talk to me about? Well,
0: so I mean, I'm interested in, in how you got here, and I'm sure that you have hundreds of fantastic stories, so I don't have a particular agenda beyond yeah. beyond also checking in just about the state of the natural wine biz, because it's just, it's sort of Mushroom to be on all recognition just in the last couple of years. Yeah, it's
1: and become a thing.
0: It really has, and it's I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are. I, mean, I also want to hear about your most recent trip because that's freshest in your mind. Right. So we right. can kind it's of start there if you I'm want. I'm in
1: the middle of working on and trying to find out. Did you go on assignment? Yeah, it's like where's the story? I know what the story is, but how to shape it into 2,500 words, which is a lot of words. Um, yeah, it was fantastic, and I don't know whether it was so fantastic because I was just. I had been grounded for months, and it felt mm-hmm. so good to be away uh kind of thrive on it, but it was it was new it was exciting there was energy uh there was a lot about Chile that reminds me of Georgia hmm. you know the broken roads, the dustiness the the we're doing something new and exciting that there's when you find an a region that has been completely uh, disabused of its natural resources, including the vine, um, especially the vine, and see it start to resurrect and actually yeah. reclaim itself.
0: Mm-hmm. from Literally from the ground up.
1: Literally from the ground up. And, you know, before it was too late. Yeah. So
0: So tell me, where were you? You, went, you made a few stops, right?
1: Yeah, I s- flew into Concepcion, and from there... Basically, did Bio Bio Itata spent time in um, a town called Chian, which, where I was a judge for an afternoon on a, At a tasting an, panel an, yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, pe- peasant wines, mm-hmm. which, actually was a funny story in itself. Then up in Concepcion and Male, and then to Maipo for a quick visit. Then up to Valparaiso. Mm-hmm and had one of those moments outside of Valparaiso where I went to visit these people who I knew still made wine. Actually, not still made wine, but was resurrecting making wine in cowskins. Wow. And I didn't realize it was their entire production in cowskin. They have one for white wine. They have one for red wine.
0: How much does a cowskin hold? How many liters?
1: That's a... um, Gosh, I have that in my...
0: Oh, you don't have to look it up. No, but I
1: I do have that, but I think it's probably... I think it's about um, the equivalent of, like, 330 bottles, sort oh, of like okay. a barrel. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: Like something like that. And but it's so
0: porous. I mean, obviously, leather tightens up when it gets wet and everything, it, but th- th- you talk about the angel's share. They must lose a huge amount to evaporation.
1: Not, not during fermentation. No? Because no. it sort of bloats, right? Yeah, no, it's... and at, And as far as... You'd really It's really airtight, actually. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason that leather was used as wineskins mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. for centuries. So this was just a really, really big wineskin. And they <laughs> keep using it over and over, right? But yeah, so and so it, I have pictures of it. It's really um, its really parched and dry. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as it's um, it's in contact with the liquid, it just softens right up. So basically you soften it up beforehand and then stretch it and then support it. And it's sort of in a, some, like a kind a, some kind of some kind of
0: cradle trough situation mm-hmm. to keep it.
1: Huh? Yep. Yeah. Wow. So it's pretty. And going through old old texts about wine in Georgia, like from the 1600s, I found reference to to this as well. So where they didn't have quivery, they were using this. It's just so it was great to see an old tradition like that. I have a funny story about that. I had seen this once before. The first time I went to Chile. And it was this old guy, and I was really grossed out yeah. because the first side was his fermenting side, mm-hmm. which seemed really wrong to me. Yeah. <laughs> and I really, when he gave me some of the wine that was made in it, I really did not want to drink it. And it was gross. It was mousy as all hell.
2: Yeah.
1: But so when I told these guys about it, they just started laughing. That was like he did what? <laughs> wow! <laughs> because it really is on the tan side that sure, using. sure. And but it was fantastic because I was really on, on the hunt for old pais, which is what they call the mission grape. Mm-hmm. And it was originally listanpierto from Canary Islands, and they make pinot and sauvignon blanc, whereas a lot of those. Grape varieties came over in the 1850s,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so they're there, but they're really new interlopers.
0: Sure. Uh, How long is the other, the other one came over with the original 1550? Yeah, yeah. The explorers brought it. Yes, in.
1: exactly. So it went to Argentina and then worked its way up to California, getting different names along. And I said, "Well, do you have any Mision?" And they pointed to probably the only new plantations that I had seen that I know of. And then I said, "Is there any old stuff?" And so they took me up into the lowest, the lowest plantation that they work with. But this is there's old, beautiful pais outside of Valparaiso, and really nobody knows it. Hmm. They think it's all in Itata and Bio Bio, but it makes sense because it went up to Peru. Sure. And there, there. So that was kind of a really exciting find. And the first time I went, there were maybe five people who worked naturally, and now I didn't have time to see them all.
0: Well, that's great. Yeah. That's really exciting. Yeah. And how is it? I mean, I sort of dabbled in Chilean wines for a minute, shortly before I kind of gave up on the new world altogether. Right. Uh, at least at the time. Yeah. Um, and so I never really well, I uh, never. learned a whole lot about it.
1: Actually, so here is, I'm trying to piece together my piece and like how to tell the story and I always forget you know why did I become a writer it is hell yes it is it really it is sucks. torture it's a fucking and wretched I, existence I know that I have no choice but to find the story and I will but anyway so I was trying to do this not in first person and there's no way I can do it in third person there's just no way yeah I have I am who I am and I'm there well, and your I,
0: writing sounds like you talking which is remarkable because I know very few people who do that and reading a book is like having you in the room. It's like a book on tape, honestly. Oh, thank so you. I hear your voice when I read your books.
1: Thank you. But I was just like, I, I avoided, I mean, Chilean wine, really? Yeah. Like, it really wasn't until Louis-Antoine Lut, who basically started the whole natural wine thing there, that I, I gave it a shot. Yeah. And it was pretty. It was very different from anything else. That the are revisionist history. And Chile had a revisionist history that started that started when Pinochet stepped down. And mm-hmm. they started to export because they never really exported before. So what happened to them is so you know, it why is it that it's always the rich guy that screws everything up when it comes to wine? <laughs> <laughs> so, when it comes to wine. And, and everything else everything in else. the world. Yeah, the rich guys. Yeah, we have we have a really prime example right now. Yes, we do. Um, so the the guys that owned the Saltpeter Mines in the 1850s got super, super rich, and they went to France because, of the, of course, that's where you go to get culture. And they fell in love with the whole Chateau model huh. of Bordeaux. And they said, we need these grape varieties, even though there were plenty of their own right. um, indigenous ones at those points. they didn't, they didn't have them. the glamour. Yeah, they didn't have the glamour. They didn't have the French accent. Uh, right. You right. Know, and, so, and so they brought them over, and that's how Cabernet Merlot Sauvignon Blanc uh, Cabernet Franc came over. And that was the beginning of calling them the fine varieties. And mm. even now, people who make uh, other varieties call these French varieties the fine varieties. And it, it's really, it it's, it, it's taking on a very self-hating standpoint. Anyway, so that is what happened and really... Yeah eighteen fifties and it really was so what happened so Pinochet carries the story along when he took over in seventy eight by putting the vines in in competition with the trees he wanted to put in to create the paper industry. Ah. So he paid people to take out their old vines of gorgeous old pais and muscat and plant non indigenous Eucalyptus and pine. Hmm. So all over the region, you just see forests and forests forest of pine and eucalyptus, and it doesn't make any sense and are they because still, they're are right they near s- the water.
0: Are they still managing those forests for, for oh yeah pulp and timber? And totally, yeah.
1: totally. And so, but now there are people who are hunting out the remaining parcels uh-huh. and recuperating them, and it really is. It's going to be interesting as. Pais is going to become a huge success story. A huge success story. It's going to become a success story. The only reason that Chile is going to get out of their crappy reputation is because the natural wine movement. The natural wine movement is going to be the Mission Grape, the Pais. Right, right. Which aren't
0: indigenous, movement. but they have a longer history, and they're Much,
1: better Yeah, adapted. it is a longer history. Right. And it suits the climate perfectly.
2: Yeah. It
1: really... Well, it's an easy place to grow grapes, but it really... Is for um, so many other varieties will immediately shoot up in sugar
2: uh-huh.
1: as soon as you know exactly like you're getting near the end of harvest and I mean the, the beginning of harvest that you're going to pick and if you miss that opportunity all of a sudden like your sugars are out of control hmm. and Pais really holds on to it and a, a nice low alcohol and has a freshness. And a beautiful structure. That's
0: great. So it, it doesn't over ripen over-ripen and it get doesn't flabby. Doesn't over ripen. That's exciting.
1: Uh, yeah, it is exciting. Who's
0: bringing it in now that you know of?
1: Uh, let's see. Brussels is one importer. Ripe imports. Hmm. Uh, I can't and try to actually T. Edwards brings uh-huh. in sure. a, a bunch. They bring in Roberto Enriquez and. Um, who does some really beautiful work and he features in stories. And I think some a couple that's making wine, really, really, truly promising. And um, they have the Macath Toe, is their name, uh-huh. Macarena and Thomas.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And nobody has them in yet. Okay. And they showed me some of the most remarkable vineyards I've ever seen. Really? Yeah. In what way? High altitude, really hidden. In a forgo- it's a forgotten place, which is
0: why it didn't get turned into forest, right? It wasn't right,
1: was it? but yes, but even there, there's forestry, but mm-hmm. still, there's up there, there's a huge amount of indigenous forest, and which means there are the local animals and birds, and mm-hmm. it was alpine, it was alpine up there, even though they were only at like 390 meters sea- yeah. above sea level, but because Chile is so close to the ocean yeah that it's it was alpine and the yeah the floor was completely alpine
0: uh, did you take some pictures
1: yeah yeah I did good but I need to get a better camera
0: <laughs> uh, yeah don't we all
1: you have a pretty good one
0: I do now yeah it's true um,
1: anyway so that was Chile with six days and you know well, it could be another book but I'm not going there
0: yeah do you have another you have another book on deck though, right?
1: Another book coming out in August.
0: That's exciting.
1: That always is exciting. Yeah.
0: What's this one called?
1: Natural wine for the people.
0: for the people, that's right. I hope do you have an upraised fist on the cover?
1: No, I wanted it. I bet you did. I bet you <laughs> No, did. the the cover is, you know, the cover the cover is not in the author's domain until you're a bestseller and you mm. get to direct it. Like yeah. Philip Roth did. Right. But very few people, it's like they always ask you what you want, and they always like negate you. Yeah. They say no. <laughs> the marketing department says that we have to go with something more straightforward so we don't alienate the whatever.
0: Sure. Yeah, that's so we don't their job, I guess. It. That's why they have marketing departments. I know I, I know. don't, so <laughs> I you kind of have to defer to them, I, guess.
1: I have, Okay, fine. You know you know what I want, and maybe I get to have my say on the back cover. Yeah. But it's my first illustrated book. Oh, exciting. And it's it's pretty fun. I
2: can't wait to see it's it. It's
1: pretty fun. It it is gonna be exciting and fun and hopefully user friendly.
0: And so how um how is it different than everything that's come before?
1: Well, it is a lot more straightforward. There is well, obviously I wrote Naked Wine to be kind of a the story of Nacho Wine and Isabel's um Isabelle LeGeron's Natural Wine is more of a, an overview. And this is really a guide. It mm-hmm. is what it is, how to drink it, where to find it. And so it's a little bit like Jancis Robinson's 24-hour expert,
0: but... Right. And so what, where the last one was broken down by geology, this one's uh, just by region, by grape, how... No, food?
1: not at all. It not really all. is what it is. So it's wine making techniques, you know, some of the buzzwords, some of the vocabulary. Um how to drink it yeah so it really is for like how to drink it how do you drink natural wine and what to expect what to expect when you drink natural wine? right right. and uh things like a lot of boxes like you know wine flaws or faults sure or hype so you you go
0: into va and mouse and all these other wonderful
1: things and then a protocol at like how to how to find it is about tastings, it's protocol of tastings, how to handle a tasting, what to wear to a tasting. Huh. Uh, and then there are some producer profiles and hot spots in the natural wine world for the natural wine tourist. Huh. And so it's not a wine guy drink, this is what it tastes like, but right. this is basically going to prepare you for entry into the world of natural wine.
2: And,
0: and was this. Um when you pitched this or when you worked out the the premise with the editor, um, is this a response to just how big the market's gotten? Is this a sort of demand-driven book in some ways because there's so many people who are now hip to this particular sector and want it?
1: I think that this is the only book that I've ever written that probably comes out at the moment that it's not too soon. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it is really that uh, five years ago I couldn't, imagine uh, oddly enough i should take out my initial proposal is that i proposed a natural wine guide in 2000 now that would have God been really you, really, really 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 way before the curve uh it would have had a readership of two you know but now there's well, but
0: now it would be in its second printing and everyone would be raving right. about right.
1: it yeah well that would be nice so well, being
0: ahead of the curve, though, that's kind of part of your brand, I think. You know, and yeah, so those, of us, who, those of us who those of us who know have you know pay attention to what you're drinking and talking about because it makes us smarter than everyone
1: else. That's awfully sweet of you to say. It's very true. It's <laughs> been honestly
0: since I first discovered you, and I honestly don't remember how it was, but um, ever since then I've been you know I've jumped on everything you've written.
1: Thank you.
0: Um, so. Uh, where did you, so I'm curious, so jumping back, you're from here, yes, from I'm from here. Yeah. I'm from here. And do you and your mom yes. still live here?
1: Well, actually, my mom lives out in Long Beach. Oh, she does? Yes. And yes, you, that's an ongoing saga. Yeah, yeah, she, an, she works I read, here.
0: I read your post yesterday. It was kind <laughs> of hilarious. Because, I, I mean, I, I had, um, you know, my mom's side of the family were all Eastern European Jews. and
2: mm-hmm.
0: I, Her parents were hilarious. Um, they didn't do, my grandmother, she didn't quite do the guilt thing the way you were describing. Right. Um, they were certainly hilarious in their way. Um, but I also had them as grandparents, which is very different than parents. It's
1: very different than parents. It's
0: They're much cuter when they're grandparents.
1: Right, and she's awfully cute, but... Um, yeah, no, it, she delivers a kind of Jewish guilt that really is, a, is dying out. I really is... No, that thing, your awful. post yesterday
0: should go in a museum, honestly. It
1: yeah, I don't usually do personal posts like this, but this is absolutely where Facebook shines.
0: Yeah. It yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, was hilarious, I mean, and you can see you got quite a reception. So yeah, people I did. are I
1: did. that
0: that sort of thing. I mean, if you've lived it, you know, that's the that's the pure uncut stuff.
1: Right, and it actually was very um heartening to for people to really understand the profundity of it. Yeah. That yeah. she really is a champ. She's, she's she's
0: good. That's yeah, that's world
1: class. Wow. Well, you seem, I mean... Shall, shall I share it with the readers exactly what we're You talking. can. I mean, it's, it's a mighty quote. There. Yeah, so um, it was just how to, how to condense it. It's just a very, very classic Jewish mother thing. I fell. What, oh, my God, what happened? Why did you fall? I was crying so hard about you and why you hate me so much that I couldn't see the step. And so I fell, and uh, you know I blame myself for you and your crappy life. That's amazing. So it was like, That's Gee just "Thanks, incredible. mom."
0: That, that kicker is really like,
1: yeah. So it's
0: like it's it's kind of beautiful <laughs> on its own, and then there's then she comes in with that left hook, you know?
1: Yeah. No, my mother. I really, she's my best material, and I often when I give talks, I, depending on, on the audience, I started one actually in Los Angeles with her, and I had the audience in my hands. Yeah. Which is like, I start off with a picture of her. I've got a Jewish mother. You know, she isn't just a Jewish mother. She is G- the Jewish mother. Yeah,
0: she's kind of the, the er-Jewish mother. And she
1: says, this is what you do for a living. You write about wine. What did I do wrong?
0: <laughs> you could have married a dentist. I know.
1: I blame myself. Oh, anyway.
0: So you grew up here.
1: I grew up in Brooklyn and on and Long Island, uh-huh. I hate to admit. Yeah, that's yeah. okay. Yeah, that's it right. was cool
0: back then. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't.
1: It was never cool. Long Island was never cool. Yeah.
0: Um, and so, at what point did you study literature? I mean, is that your... Did you...
1: Yes, I did.
0: And so, I, I forget, you that. have
1: siblings? I had a brother.
0: You had a brother. Um, and so, you went to college for English, writing?
1: I went for college to get away as soon as I possibly could, Yeah. and I screwed that up, but so, that was uh, the idea of going for an education. Um, that came much later. I was a miserable student, but yes, I studied literature, music, and dance. Oh wow. where'd so, you go? Stony Brook. Okay,
0: not far enough away.
1: Not far enough away. You didn't there escape were,
0: the gravitational field.
1: No, uh, the memoir hopefully will be sold soon, and we'll we'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah.
0: No, if you you need to you need to be airplane distance if you really want to be no, safe it, from that it just of, it
1: just could not happen at that time. Mm-hmm. There were too many. You know, there was just it was just too difficult. I couldn't get that far away at mm-hmm. that point.
0: But you graduated? You got your degree? I, yeah. And then? And um, then
1: went to graduate school in Boston. For what? Dance therapy. Oh,
0: wow. Uh, and that was?
1: Still not far enough away. No. And which school? <laughs> Leslie College Graduate School. Okay. And then, in spite of everything, after a decade, I came back.
0: You did? And what, okay, so in that intervening decade, were you working as a dance therapist? I was working
1: you? as a dance therapist. I was unwittingly learning about wine as fast as I could. Not just by for, drinking? Just by drinking and tasting groups and. It just but happened.
0: so you were—you weren't just drinking. You were actually formalizing the practice yes. with groups yeah. uh, that you organized, or you just glommed on. Organized, to some, but yeah. they were
1: purely social, and nobody was being super geeky about it.
0: Mm-hmm. So but it you still lined bottles up and went totally them. and okay.
1: thematic and understood the region, and, right? And so at that point, when I decided that I had to go back to my writing roots, and that had to be back in New York City, I. Started pitching stories of something that I knew, thought I knew mm-hmm. about. So that was one, one of the things. Wine, actually, like any other schnook, sh- I thought, oh, I've got an opinion on it, so I can write about it.
0: Sure. Well, except you happen to be right.
1: Except I happen to be right.
0: And this was also <laughs> um, this was pre-internet. Still, I imagine.
1: This was pre-internet. Yeah, this what? was pre-internet. I only got hooked on email. I think I only, I only first got an email account in 91. Mm Mm-hmm. So I moved back to New York in 88.
2: 88,
0: okay. And so who were you pitching to?
1: Wine Spectator. Uh Uh-huh. Wine, um, Food and Wine Magazine, all of the, you know, like Bon Appetit, Elle Magazine. uh, What sort of stories,
0: like what opinions did you have that you were most confident in? New York
1: Times. Let's see. Well, I really back then had the triumvirate of food, wine, and design. Uh-huh. So I did a lot of design magazines, like House Beautiful and El Decor. Uh, Connoisseur Magazine. Uh-huh. I Sorry. had my first big wine article for Connoisseur Magazine. That was an assignment on Long Island Wine. But so what kind of stories? I uh, got a, a silly little email back from Wine Spectator asking me what Eau de Vie had their, with their readership. Hmm. Like, you guys really? I, they had no idea what Odev was. Wow. That is was shocking to me. Yeah. Um,
0: well, but this country in the late eighties—I mean, this this was downright primitive. The, the national palate was really embarrassingly bad back then. I mean, that was the era of remember sun-dried tomatoes? That was the first great like ingredient that I remember being hyped in. It was in everything, right? It was in.
1: Right. Well, that was nineteen, along with the pink peppercorns, which right. actually severely maligned.
0: I love pink pepper. I effect. love them, and yeah. I've
1: rediscovered them. How did this ever get to be a, a cliché?
0: Who knows? I mean, th- because things get marketed right. like crazy, they become signifiers of a, of right. a cheesy trend. They don't, right. the thing in, its, in and of itself isn't a bad thing. They
1: are just so snappy. Yeah. And pink.
0: Yes, they're very pink.
1: They're very pink. They taste pink. They do. Um, it, not in a, you know, not in a candy sweetheart way. Yeah. But just beautifully pink. So I, uh, am like, I did a lot of local stuff like Manhattan Magazine, New York Magazine, and the kind of things that I pitched were so I wasn't really traveling into vineyards much then, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: was really what people wanted, what to drink. Yeah. So, which I think is pretty much where anybody starts. Yeah. And it's a little embarrassing.
2: Back actually, then, you mean, like your, yeah, where your taste you was? Yeah,
1: you know, it's, but uh, that's really all people wanted were wine recommendations. Yeah. When I go back to see some of my wine recommendations, I really didn't recommend anything that was too embarrassing. Hmm. Well, that's good. Which was, which was actually encouraging. So, but the nice thing about having tasted wine so um, so broadly between 78 and, let's say 88 from when I got here, I had a solid base in old world wine because it predated it. Well,
0: and before they started fucking with it too, right? Exactly.
1: So I was acutely aware when they started fucking around with it. And I was like, hey, and I was really in, you know, you get involved in all these press events, and all of my colleagues would get up and like ask people why they changed. You know, what is all this new oak and what is all this like dramatically different from what you were doing before? Why well, is it purple
0: and two points higher than right. it used to be?
1: Exactly, and But nobody wrote about it. Yeah. They got upset in the moment, but then they well, wrote all this, to talk these about puff pieces. Yeah,
0: you were just supposed to do the great big, hey, look, it's, you know, because yeah. that was becoming the era of Parker. Exactly,
1: exactly. So it was really when I I thought, you know, I'm either the stupidest person in the world, but uh, you guys, somebody's got to speak up about this. So that's why I wrote the first book. Mm-hmm. Which came out when? 2008. Eight. So I, I pitched it in 2005. Right. But you know, in those days, so I was, you know, like I got some features here and there. Yeah. A lot of magazines that are no longer there.
0: So you spent the 90s, as it were, just kind of doing. Building up
1: a resume. Doing, and
0: Doing uh, magazine work.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. And writing a lot about design, which I missed doing. Yeah. That was great. And
0: did you have a background in that, or you were just, you were just an aficionado and you. Uh,
1: I was an aficionado. You know, and I loved architecture. And Uh that is the only time... I think that... I often think that my life has not been marked by any fate or luck at all. Mm -hmm. It just is all hard work. Yeah. Like, can somebody please just open up a door for me, please? So I can, like, walk through it and see what happens. Well, you make
0: your own luck by by having a long resume, by being really good at what you do,
1: by... Yeah, but it's always nice to be sitting next to somebody who opens up that... Of course. But the one door that I didn't go through... Yeah was being offered editor of Architecture Magazine, which would have meant that I would have Uh moved to D.C. Oh, okay. And I just couldn't do that. Yeah. But I often wondered what would have happened had I done that.
0: Yeah, D.C. also, I mean, it's different now, but back then it was kind of a food desert.
1: Oh, my God, the idea of being in D.C.
0: And the summers are just horrifying. I hate the heat. So, yeah, I could see that was probably a good choice. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Although and you, might have, you
0: might have met that dentist that your mom wanted you to uh, marry. Or, yeah, or a yeah. lobbyist, perhaps.
1: Uh, probably. Uh, yeah, I think that I would have been celibate in D.C. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think it's a tough Thank town for creative people.
1: Yeah.
0: That's not the... Uh, that's not the.
1: I could have become best friends with Parker.
0: Yes, you could have. That's right, because he's down there, right? He's yeah. in Maryland yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, you,
1: were
0: yeah. you were not going to become best friends with him.
1: No, I, I mean, but honestly,
0: I know, uh, you know, it wasn't a runaway bestseller, but but an integral part of your early branding was kind of being the anti-Parker, yeah, being the one person who was willing to stand up and say this is bullshit. These wines suck, they're yeah. undrinkable or borderline.
1: Yeah, I was the, I was the only one who did that. Yes, you were. I, it is re- remarkable to me that I was the only one who did it, and I got a lot of shit for it. Um, and but
0: you pissed off the right people, which is you know.
1: I guess I did. You know, and I followed up with not only Parker, but then I took on the California wine industry. So th- there were three things that really took it on. There was that story for the New York Times for better or worse, mm-hmm. winemakers go high tech. Yeah. Then there was the book, and then there was um, an op-ed piece for the LA Times about how California wines are over overripe, overrated, and overpriced.
0: Yeah. I that one I don't think I read. When did that come out?
1: Just when my book came out. Okay. So when I landed in California for my book tour, yeah. I felt like I should be wearing a flak jacket. Uh-huh. It was like, the reception was like, do not put a, put a step into Napa Valley. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I really...
2: But, but you were
0: right. I mean, you were absolutely right on all three counts. It was, I was. I remember that was... So right around the turn of the millennium, I, I had begun buying wine. Actually, when it was when after my mom died, because I had a little bit of cash, um, and so I bought a bunch of stuff, and I started with, you know, the kind of big international style because that was the gateway drug, and and I had up till then just been drinking sort of student grade wine because you know broke ass painter, um, but in the space of just a couple of years, I, I got because I got much more serious about cooking mm-hmm. as well, and I was having the damnedest time figuring out what on earth you're supposed to cook to go with these behemoth things right Fifteen and a half percent opaque yeah. you know they taste like cough syrup but you can't there's no food that matches with that except maybe mm-hmm. chocolate covered lamb chops maybe you know I mean there's like <laughs> that's a there's, good one. there's nothing yeah. that works with yeah. that and so they I, I, I immediately started kind of retreating towards things that were transparent and lower alcohol just mm-hmm. because I wanted wine that worked with food that was yeah. a food so that's around the time you know uh that I really started paying attention to this Mm. and sold all that crap that I had bought.
1: There was, um, early on, around that same time when I was trying to figure, before, actually, it would have been late 90s, I was friends with a bow maker who really got into wine collecting big time to the point Mm -hmm. of, I think he eventually went bankrupt, and he had an incurable, he bought points. Uh And we, we, I'd go over and taste because he broke out all this expensive shit and I was like, it was all undrinkable. Yeah. You, the whole, you know, those New World Barolas, i have been like, really? Yeah. And all of this, like, powerful, powerful Chateauneuf. I remember one yeah. of the hard, and Grenache still hasn't bounced back. I mean, the Southern Rhone still hasn't come back from Parkerism. And I remember, I cut my teeth on Grenache from low-cost Cotteron. Yeah, that my first case of wine was thirty-eight case, thirty-eight, thirty-eight bucks. Yeah, and it was just a beautiful little Cotteron, or even back when Gigal used to be good because it's still completely undrinkable. But that it was is. just it a is. sunny, beautiful, slightly rusty, complex, satisfying wine, and I still miss that. Every once in a while, I get a glimpse of it. Yeah,
0: I, I had a couple bottles of of Gigal's Brune Blonde from. Late eighties or whatever. Yeah. Oh God, they were, they were so beautiful. wonderful. They
1: were beautiful, and I had some recent ones from all well, from the you know, two two thousand and up, and they were still eighteen years later completely um, intractable.
0: That's the thing that I've noticed as well. Um, with with some of that sort of ilk that I've had now with close to two decades on them, mm-hmm. they don't get easier. No. There's some weird. The
1: the wood separates from the wine, and it's just. Well, wood tannins just don't go away. Yeah. And that is that they do not age up the way grape tannins do. And so that is one reason that it was. I've yet to see a wine smacked in blue oak that actually went somewhere.
0: I've had some Grenache from. Toast outlying regions in the southern Mm Rhone, you know like Languedoc and and, and some there's some beautiful stuff being done but it's outside of the Appalachians
1: Uh,
0: but yeah Chateauneuf has not no
1: no there's not one well there is one or two but when you get an old fashioned one that is raised in concrete Mm -hmm. and it's still possible but it still is yeah
0: I had a six pack of 90 vieux donjon in my Mm -hmm. collection for a while oh my god was that gorgeous yeah it's gorgeous yeah no yeah. more. That's, but that's like, it's like a dinosaur now. I mean, it's just, they don't, they're extinct, yeah. kind of. Yeah. The, those those embodiments of a particular hillside or vineyard yeah. are just kind of know
1: Villeneuve is still good. Um, can't think of any other.
0: Um, so, but do you find, price notwithstanding, right, because obviously a lot of us would be buying drunk from Burgundy
1: right.
0: on a regular basis if we could afford it, or Barola or any of the, you know, the sort of unassailable mm-hmm. peaks. Um, but like the example that I gave about um, Grenache from the Languedoc or whatever yeah. um, There's now, to me There are so many little peripheral um, Formerly sort of Ignored or just underrated Or um, or mostly just for local consumption Only regions mm-hmm. that are now being Imported en masse because the market Demands things right. that are 20-something Dollars a bottle and, right. um, But they haven't been afflicted with the Well, they, they were never fetched very high prices So nobody had any incentive to Adulterate them mm-hmm. or ruin them um so is that where you're sort of focusing your energies in terms of discovery? Because you clearly not, know a lot already.
1: Not really. Uh actually don't don't underestimate the crappy co op with crappy viticultural and uh practices and very proud of their thermo-vitification machine. Yeah. So because if you can push out the wine earlier, then you know, you'd make more money quicker. Right. So uh I, contrary to popular belief, I don't actually hunt things specifically. No. Um, if I see a new region that I'm unfamiliar with, yeah, um, I, just, I just drink a lot, and I go, oh, that's cool. <laughs> so that's, that's what. Uh, but with Georgia, it wasn't, oh, my God, let me go and see this new country. Yeah. Somebody brought in 2008 a bottle of Georgia wine to a dinner for me,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I thought, wow, this is really cool.
0: Do you remember what it
1: was? Yeah, it was a Vino Terra Kisi. Uh-huh. Uh, it was a little bit flabby, but it was enough to make me interested in the country. Yeah. So that's, a, one would think, let's take Hungary. Hungary has absolutely no interest for me
2: mm-hmm.
1: because it's all new world, new money, and there's nothing. When I look for an affordable region, uh, you know, there's still all of the Langdeck. Mm-hmm. is affordable, Yeah. pretty much. Of course, it was multi, multi farming. Mm-hmm. So, you know, bats and vines grow really well in the Southwest. They do. So it's easier. So that's and probably why.
0: So you, so you like so when you say you just drink a lot and you, you know I mean, just drink
1: a lot. Well, I drink a lot. I go to tastings. If I'm at a tasting and I'll sit, and sometimes I do go. Oh, I don't know this region. Let me go and check out. I've never heard of this. This is a new appellation for me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will go and sometimes there's absolutely nothing interesting.
0: Right. well so describe the trajectory um, in terms of the country of Georgia the trajectory between that first bottle at a dinner party and then you going to write the book because clearly you you really fell for it pretty hard
1: well 2008 so I had the KC I was interested Uh, that year there was a tasting in New York City at the consulate and I went and I was pretty horrified yeah. Because it was Cabernet Merlot, Chardonnay, blah, 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 Aye. blah. There was one Sagrantino. There was one, not Sagrantino, <laughs> um, Saboravi, and mm-hmm. one uh, Ricazzatelli, mm-hmm. and one Kisi. The, the Vinotera was there, and Pheasant's Tears. There were only two people who were showing their wines that were made in Quevery. Uh-huh. Everything else was international, European-style sure. wines.
0: Which, you said in the book, goes back to Stalin and his five-year plants, right? Yeah. About the olden plant, the international grapes. Right.
1: Well, actually the international grapes really, really arrived. Well, there was a slight um there was a slight flirtation in the eighteen hundreds. Oh, okay. But it really wasn't until the Was end sorry, was of that analogous
0: started, to the Chilean rich people too? Did yes. the, the, they go on the Grand Same Tour and they bring the French they grapes? They were very
1: back? ha yeah. actually, they were very the guy that brought back capitalization mm-hmm. lived in Emirate because it was like, Whoa, how exciting. We yeah. let's add sugar to the wine. So there was some, but no, it was there were some international grapes, but that really didn't happen until after Stalin. Mm,
2: okay. It was
1: the Stalin plans were responsible for reducing the diversity mm-hmm. of the 525 plus grape varieties yeah. into the chocolate and vanilla of yeah. Reciçatelli and Saperavi, with a little bit of Kisi and a little bit of chenere.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that and basically went for volume over quality. That's right. what it is. The international grapes came later, but. Uh, so I was pretty, like, horrified. I was yeah. like, well, there goes that one. Yeah, yeah. Looks Because every emerging region did the same thing. Let's show you our Cabernet. Like, who the fuck cares yeah. about yeah. your Cabernet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The world has Please, too much Cabernet. Please, for the Cabernet. love of God,
0: grow anything else. Yes,
1: anything else. <laughs> what? You know, you're known for something. Do that for yeah. God's sake. Yeah. So I said, well, that's done. And then the next year, Chris Terrell, who's a wine importer, said, I'd like to send you a couple of bottles of Georgian wine. And I remember tasting here, and I was tasting with Aldo Somme and Levy Dalton, actually. And uh, poor Aldo just couldn't stand them. But I was like, these were not great examples of a wine, but they were interesting. Yeah. There, was some, there was some damage to the wine. It, I just felt that it wasn't. And based on that, at the back of Naked Wine, yeah. which came out in 2011, I included Pheasant's Tears, from Georgia mm-hmm. as to go and look for based on that I was invited to come and speak at an international quivery conference which I think sounds so funny
0: yeah that's kind of great
1: in 2011 wait 20 my book came out in 2011 so that was in 20 oh actually right after the book came out okay so the book came out in 2011 in the summer and I was invited in 2011 in to Georgia yeah and so that was it and then I found the Georgia that I had been hoping to find like that was working with indigenous grape varieties uh, working in traditional ways and they were working naturally so at that point because I had seen you know Bulgaria go down the rabbit hole Greece go down the rabbit hole of international varieties everyone who wanted the attention of the world made the wrong decision Mm -hmm. in my humble opinion well mine too (laughs) And so I wrote, you know, I decided that I wanted to do what, use whatever power I possibly had to give them enough attention so they were not seduced by the consultants who told them they had a lot of
0: And did you find that you had... Um You had some help from the actual sort of Georgian government. Yes. And and, and they were very excited that this American expert was taking a fancy to the real real stuff. I mean, were they still connected enough to that notion of their own history?
1: There was, they asked me to write an Alice-style book Mm -hmm. called Skin Contact, which I called Skin Contact, as a little, here's a little bit about our wine. And that became the seed for my Georgian book Uh for the love of wine. And so they did support that, which I viewed as helping me write a book proposal. Sure. But actually, I thought you could. They did something even better: is that they helped their natural winemakers, mm-hmm. and for several years they funded them to go away to show their wines at various
2: Great.
1: various venues, and that did a lot. They sent these people out as ambassadors into Fantastic. the world. Fantastic. So I, that, to have that kind of government support. Sure. It was really unheard of.
0: and So they found importers and distributors and all Absolutely. That. That's great. Yeah. So yeah. you really helped kind of uh, jumpstart that industry in terms of its international profile.
2: Yeah. That's that super exciting. That the stars. thing that I
0: love uh, uh, I'm, I'm just a tourist when it comes to Georgian wines but um, the thing that I love about them is that I can honestly say that I've had experiences drinking Georgian wine where exactly zero of the normal flavor experiences that I associate with mm-hmm. wine drinking have come into play.
1: Huh, cool.
0: Um, flavors that are just so far afield of, yeah. of what I consider, and I have a pretty you know, uh, broad-ranging curiosity in the wine world. And, and e-
1: Even with the red wines?
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, th- there are clearly some other reds from elsewhere that can go to some of those places, but there's a there's a sort of alien-in-a-good-way quality to some Georgian grapes, and like you said, they have hundreds and hundreds of grapes that nobody else seems to have. Yeah anywhere, and winemaking may even originate in Georgia. Right.
1: And to have that wealth of indigenous grapes, you know, there are other places that, I mean, how many grapes are in Italy? Yeah. But that nobody else has. That's true. It, it, like you said, it's... that's
0: true, but Italian wine all still tastes like wine. I know. <laughs> and Georgian wine sometimes really doesn't.
1: Yeah, I often, when I'm doing a tasting, especially with the Georgian skin contact wines, mm-hmm. I will... Say, just forget everything you knew about wine, Mm -hmm. forget all of your descriptors, forget everything. Yeah. And if, and just walk through that door with me. And when I do that, people are ready to go. Yeah. They'll go, wow, if I don't set them up that way, it can be a disaster.
0: Yeah. They raise their hand timidly and say, I think this one's court.
1: I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly.
0: I, I had, um, I was at Anfra, the, you know, the wine bar on, Mm -hmm. on the west side, and, uh, um, I had our wine which you write about in the book mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and I had exactly that sort of experience I mean it had other things before this wasn't that long ago but nonetheless I sat there with this glass of wine and I just said what the fuck does this taste like and I was just, like, trying to tease you know the strands apart and it was just it was this kind of ah right. oh, it was great I mean I, I got a second glass and just spent another you know half an hour trying to figure out what the hell was going on yeah
1: and that's a remarkable wine and um is it seriously old-fashioned rakıtsıteli? Yeah. Seriously. I
0: love that it was cloudy and had things floating in it.
1: And, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's still little pips and stuff floating yeah. in it, but there. Uh, now Georgian wine is kind of in. Um, oh, it's fluid. <laughs> there, there's a lot of cultural exchange, so there's more variety. That was the way traditional Georgian white wine was made. Mm-hmm. And now people are fooling around with the skin contact and how they're doing it. So there's, uh, while still having a traditional old sturdy wine, those wines, by the way, age beautifully. Yeah. Just age beautifully. Uh, well, you, I had you some in the 60s.
0: Really? Yeah. Wow. Because you, you talk about how Fevery, um is particularly suited to making age-worthy wines.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, because of the way things precipitate out into the pointy base, so there's much right. less surface area. Right. And uh, that that was really, that was interesting to me because I love old whites in general uh-huh. when they're done properly, it's some of my favorite stuff to drink
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, so what in terms of, like, how do you see that country's industry which you've done so much to help, how are they because I think you just sort of started to address it but how do you see them now responding to this, you know, global spotlight and, and all the hipster attention and
1: well there are you know, it's not all rosy in the Georgian wine world. There's still the consultants and the government agency that mm-hmm. has to represent everybody. Yeah. And so right now they're trying to do a South African, Canadian thing with, it. if your wine is flawed, you can't sell it.
0: Ah. But who decides what's a flaw? That's
1: a, that's a big problem. Um, and so there's a, so the Georgian natural guys have have some work to do to to um, protect themselves and their mm-hmm. home turf. But other than that, uh, uh, there there are people who are able to be full-time winemakers for the first time yeah. in recent Georgian history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many of them are now full-time winemakers, and which is such an element of pride yeah. and joy. There are second generation I was going to ask wine is winemakers? it becoming now a multi-generational hey, it is now wine. multi-generation and where five six years ago there were no there was one woman winemaker which was Iago's wife Marina now daughters are taking over and which is phenomenal yeah. in a really patriarchal society yeah. so I, I'm seeing a way where wine once again can bring cultural change to a country Oh, uh, that's pretty nifty. The wines are getting traction. Uh, you see them more by the glass in places. In Georgia? In America. In America, okay. In Georgia, there are wine bars everywhere.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, at least in in uh, Tbilisi, natural wine has really taken off. It's become a thing there. So where it was really in 2011, there were five five guys making wine. Mm-hmm. Now, they're about 75. Wow. And they have their own natural wine tasting that happens twice a year. One in Kutaisi and one in Tbilisi. It's very cool.
2: Yeah, that's exciting.
1: It is. It's absolutely exciting. And there are some French guys going into making wine. There's a guy making champagne-style wine out near Gori. Uh, they're
0: but using native grapes.
1: Nat- yeah. You know, some people might have some hidden international grapes that they don't want sure. to fess up to. For blending or mm-hmm.
0: th- for blending or, or to do oh, I
1: just like to check things out. See
0: what does well. Yeah.
1: yeah. But well, no, but they have so many of their own and it's such an, a point of na- national pride.
0: Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a big part of their identity, right? Because right. The, historically point. families all made their own small yeah. amount of wine. Yeah.
1: Right? But personally I find the diversity in that country where it is Mind-boggling.
2: Yeah,
1: the kinds of wines that come out of Georgia, better than ever. So it
0: sounds like if you go back in five more years, it'll be a very, very different landscape. Yeah, I'll
1: be curious what happens when the big companies start really losing market share. Mm-hmm. Because now one of their biggest of the conventional wines, one of the biggest places they export to, is Russia. Uh-huh. But now Russia's coming on very big into natural wine and wants the Georgian naturals.
0: <sighs> we'll see. Mm. That's exciting. You, you may have helped disrupt an entire national industry. Yeah. <laughs> well, and but Georgia's such a unique case, right? Because of its incredible ancient history with wine, yeah. possibly the most ancient. Um, because of its unique and and hugely number, um, huge number of of native species that aren't mm-hmm. found anywhere else. Um, the, I mean, it, w- your trip to Chile sounds really interesting, but in terms of like. I don't know, I'm thinking like a subject matter that you can sink your teeth into as as enthusiastically as Georgia. I'm uh, wondering what might be next in that regard.
1: Uh, sake. Huh. <laughs> um, which I'm thinking about a lot, and especially the pure sake movement, mm-hmm. because that was also something that was completely industrialized uh, post-World War II and... Old ways of making sake have been, so I guess, I guess what I do is I, I focus on cultural winemaking or, sure. or sake making. Um, so that may be the next frontier for me. What have you?
0: Is. What have you tried in the way of um, some of the domestic sake from the northwest and you know, people who are really starting to try to do it here with native, you know, American grown rice and.
1: I have not been. The last time I had a domestic sake was the guy who's making wine in, the, I mean, wine sake in Austin.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't think he's doing it anymore, and that was, yeah, he was doing the real thing. I was pretty impressed. He was doing really? it with uh, rice grown in Texas,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and but I haven't really gone near the Northwest variety of people for a while because. I've re- they were using selected yeasts in a way very much yeah. like wine selected yeast uh, chosen for aroma
2: yeah
0: and what? so what are your thoughts then on um, you know because there are a lot of different strains of koji and yeah. most koji in Japan is industrial but right. there are and it's been bred to be white because right. that helps it stand out from the bad molds which are green or black Right. Um, but naturally aspergillus is not necessarily white at all mm-hmm. um so I'm, I'm curious because you have this sort of two stage thing right because you have the Koji all over the rice, which mm-hmm. breaks it down enzymatically, and then you're fermenting the sugars right. from that with yeast. so you have two different microbial populations that are going mm-hmm. to work on this, and so I'm curious um, what you think in terms of i don't know terroir or t- you know regional
1: well actually identity. have you ever I trying to remember the name of the um, the name of the socket producer or maki. I did a side-by-side tasting with... They had very small production from rice that they grew Mm -hmm. that was organic next to their more common sake. Uh Uh-huh. It was mind-blowing. Really? Absolutely mind-blowing. Same
0: degree of polishing and all that, but but just... Wow, just growing differently.
1: And just... Well... And the idea of... uh, You know, obviously... Like in Italy, different strains and locale of terroir for rice is very important, Sure. or at least historically. And that was what told me about locality. Hmm. And then there are a couple of other people that I've had. I think there's a future in, in terroir kind of sake. Uh, that may be another frontier, but I'm more, more into learning the story about how the sake tradition got lost got lost yeah i <laughs> how did fine polishing become you know like just like the white you know the the sophisticated white bread sure you know and, and uncovering those and the to expose the advent of the use of aromatic yeasts mm-hmm. on the koji, because
0: um, I mean, my, I believe that there's a fairly linear correlation between the price of sake and the degree of polishing of the rice, right? Mm-hmm. So that that really became the single right. metric for quality, yeah. as it were. Yeah, and but be, you disagree with that?
1: Disagree with it? Yeah, yeah.
0: And I, obviously, lab yeast, lab grown yeast, is a no-no.
1: Well. Th- at least when it, there's certain select ones that are promoting certain aromatics. Mm-hmm. At some point, I realized with sake, and I was not, and I'm still a sake novice. It's one reason I'm really super excited about writing about it because mm-hmm. and learning about it. Yeah. It's because it's new, and yeah. I, I need something new at this point. But at some point, all of a sudden, I'm recognizing yeast strains, huh. and they're reminding me of California Chardonnay. And the body changes.
0: So you get this sort of tropical fruit, yeah, pi- pineapple like, coconutty yeah. thing happening.
1: Like, why? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that. Because well, people
0: like it. People be- buy it. I mean, that's you know those 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 brown butter pineapple yeah. Chardonnays. Like, people love that shit.
1: Yeah.
0: And it gets you drunk because it's fifteen percent, sixteen percent alcohol. Right. That's
1: right. But.
0: And it's like a it's like a daiquiri, but you know it's right. like, you're only drinking wine.
1: Right, and it's got a ritual <laughs> around it. Is. Yeah. That's cool. There, there is So now there is sort of a resurrection, a bit of an awareness. So it might be the moment for that. And if I w- had more of an affinity for South America... Yeah. I'd, but I don't. It was great. Yeah. But I'm such an Eastern European. Yeah. Um
0: well, how about Japan? Have you spent some time there? I
1: have not spent any time in Japan, yeah. but I'm just completely fascinated by it.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I know that Japan is a huge, possibly the second biggest market for natural
1: wine. Yeah, it's
0: huge. After America? Yeah, now. it was
1: probably the first. Probably. I think it's before America. Like, it? I mean, I think they actually, I think they, maybe this year we turn the corner.
0: Mm-hmm. So.
1: But Japan gets the good stuff. They yeah. more of the good stuff.
0: Well, because they kind of got in on the ground floor, and so I make, I'm wondering, does that mean that the terrain there is already pretty softened up for natural sake, since it's there indigenous? You would think. But it's not? You're not finding that so not far? Not finding
1: it so far. But um, but it will. That, that will break.
0: And so you're thinking of planning a trip or pitching another book?
1: Well, a Dirty Guide is coming out in Japanese.
0: Oh, wow. That's so exciting. I
1: definitely am going to go for that. You're
0: you going to go with Pascaline? I don't know. That would be fun.
1: I don't know. I'd I'd follow that.
0: I'd follow that on Instagram. (laughs)
1: That'd be pretty cool. Maybe she would go with me. Um, But uh, yeah, I'm totally, totally like into like going there. And so that's something that has to happen. And then I'm my I wanted to go for brewing season this year, but it has to wait until next year. Yeah. I mean, because of you know, like the stuff that's going on with ethel oh yes <laughs> to go
0: I, I thought you were gonna say book tour but no no, no much more no, no. it's like
1: i've been grounded because of my mother lately
0: Oof. Uh, and you don't have a lot of help in that
1: regard don't have any help no yeah, yeah. Um, you're a good daughter i'm a good daughter i am um, even if i am a wine writer i shooker. you're a shicker uh, man
0: uh so the um so you think the Japan thing will probably start with like a research trip and and yeah. gathering information so you can write the proposal right. that's sort of That's probably. And you have an idea maybe for the fall or winter or something when the It
1: depends what happens with the memoir.
0: Yeah. Oh right, the memoir. So yeah. talk to me about that. Is that a thing that's you're now moving towards?
1: I'm moving towards. So we're in the agent finding mode. Uh-huh. Um and, but I. Have sure. you been
0: doing this all along without an agent so far?
1: Uh, no, no, no. I've just been without an agent for the past two years. Okay. So I did the last book without an agent. Okay. Um, and basically because I didn't know where I was going and what I was doing, and what I wanted. Yeah. But I. So I have a good chunk of the memoir written, and uh, we'll see.
2: Yeah.
1: So I think that I need to. My learning curve is going to be a big one for the sake
2: yeah
1: um so maybe I'll do this first
0: the memoir sounds terrific
1: Mm, that may open up another door for me which I you know would like to walk through yeah absolutely I think I'm ready even though I had a nightmare about it last night Mm. first time that I dreamt about this serial killer really yeah yeah. it was like ooh yeah like I remember when I was trying to avoid writing it one thing that I didn't want to do was have nightmares about him.
2: Hmm.
0: Is that historically an indicator of something you shouldn't be doing then?
1: No, he's sa- He's, he's safely behind bars, <laughs> but, uh, just, uh, you know, I think that when you dream about something, it means that it's something that you've got to deal with hmm. on whatever level you are dealing with it, but it makes for lousy sleep.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, I'm familiar with that. Uh, but it, it would seem to me that, I mean, especially, like, yes, there's obviously great comedic value in, you know, your mother's guilt trips and, and her, uh, you know, just kind of general high maintenance um, presence in your life. I mean, on the one hand, and, you know, you're lucky to still have a mother. Yes. At, at this age. And, and uh, but on the other hand, I mean, clearly there's, you know, there's going to be some trauma and some scars and a lot of shit that you may not want to go in and excavate.
1: Right. Uh, yeah,
0: That's, you know, very well, understandable. But it might be really cathartic and useful well, to do I think it.
1: my mother is going to give the book about a serial killer, The Comic Relief. hmm <laughs> That probably yeah. is needed. Wow. Well, no.
0: uh, so what... I, I mean, I'm not sure I know what the serial killer oh, refers I to. Oh, I see.
1: Okay, that's the memoir. Okay. So, um, but when I was 14, I escaped... Um, A guy that I thought was a pervert, and 40 years later I found out he was a serial killer.
0: So he captured you, kidnapped
1: you? Well, I I escaped his apartment. uh So, without giving it away, but so embedded in that is a bit of my own... I'm telling that story embedded in a memoir.
2: Okay, wow. At
1: 14 that happened. Yes, and about the kind of fear that my mother tried to hobble with me, hobble me with, um, that I think I've been running away from my whole life.
0: So, so So, you think she used that trauma as a way of keeping you nearby?
1: Well, she didn't, she didn't know about it. Oh, okay. But I think, um, You know, She still tells a story about you were one year old and you were fearlessly like running. I started walking when I was eight, which Mm. she never forgave me for it because i started running away from her immediately. (laughs) So in other words, and then you were one year old and you were running in, you know, off the deep end of the the pool. Mm. You know, and I just flop in and I can't swim. So the only thing that your father ever did that was any good, he jumped in and saved you. But um, yeah, that's been kind of a. A metaphor. I think I'm very fearful, and the rest of the world views me as fearless. Mm. So.
0: Well, I don't think there's a discrepancy between, in, in all in of In any, us.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh,
0: I think Internet. in your case, because you're so outspoken, yeah. and because you are so no bullshit in everything that you say and do, that it's understandable that people think of you that way. Because on the page, you absolutely are fearless. Mm-hmm. Um whether that translates into how you right. comport yourself Indeed. emotionally in your yes. life is obviously a different question. Yeah. But
1: which, which you're right, that we all have the inner life and outer life. Sure. The pres- the how we're perceived and how we feel.
0: I mean, I can't it's tell you how many people I know who are very good at what they do and are getting real recognition for it, and they still think they're a fraud mm-hmm. through and through.
1: Yeah. And
0: I, and I am not immune to that myself.
1: Yeah. Uh, and it's I'm a not, real thing.
0: It's a real thing. And I think a big part of being human is, is building an outward-facing edifice, you know, mm-hmm. of professionalism and decorum and all the mm-hmm. other things that we, that we wear to be, you know, civilized. But mm-hmm. inside, it's, it's, a, it's a seething chaos of insecurity and fear. And
1: Except those few people who don't have it.
0: Yeah, I guess. I don't know. But there's something even more wrong with them. There must be.
1: Yeah, <laughs> there has to be.
0: Well, or you know, or they're just straight up sociopaths, which we're certainly suffering a lot at the hands of these yes. days. People who just lack that emotional connection, but they they act it, but they they don't feel it.
1: The odd thing is that sociopaths are usually narcissists, and narcissists are completely hollow inside, that they've got to fill up with the external. But there's something that makes them skip the fraud stage they just okay I'll take that I'll fill myself with that that's who
0: I am yeah it's remarkable yeah it's remarkable so I guess it's a sign of mental health that you have doubt and anxiety about your
1: (laughs) yes let's go with that
0: about your worth right um but it's it is a real thing and it isn't it is an obstacle that doesn't ever really go away I mean it sort of becomes manageable or you learn how to kind of hop over it or sidestep it or in my case I I, I've come up with ways of kind of tricking myself into doing things Mm -hmm. um you know when I was a painter I got very very good at not thinking about galleries and collectors because the only way I could really make a piece that that just made me feel so good inside
2: mm-hmm.
0: was by not at all letting that mindset of will it sell will people like it into the studio with me. And I, you know, I spent 20 years kind of learning mm-hmm. how to how to just push that very gently out the door. And it didn't always work, but but hmm. it was necessary for me to do what I did,
1: to what not think ha- about
0: the public reception.
1: What you have to do when you write essays or fiction is like can you find a market for it? Though at a certain point, you have to find a market for it. You do. Well, that's <laughs> the.
0: But ironically, of course, you then have to come around and market the shit out of it. And a lot of times, especially when you're writing, say, for an academic press, which you and I have both right. done,
2: yeah.
0: uh, they have no budget for that. So it's really on you. And you know you're right. <laughs> your PR juggernaut right such as it is uh, which <laughs> yeah. includes a mailing list you know well into the uh, low s- triple digits and, and uh, a thousand followers on Instagram you know it's, so it's you realize what you're up against when you do have to do that yourself and, and that the doubt can definitely come roaring right. back when you're
2: right.
0: faced with the reality that you have no budget and it's just right. you waving your hands in the air saying yeah pay attention to me yeah
1: the social media can feed really into that in both ways
0: it, it's it's yeah it's it's insidious I mean I use it, I enjoy it, I like keeping track of what people are up to I mean I loved seeing that you were down in Chile and you know, Sevs bouncing around Australia or what you know i mean it's yeah. it's great to see what people are doing, but man, the likes and the follows it's it's like becomes you know you start to get twitchy if you don't get a few
1: yeah i I have stopped looking
0: yeah, good for you
1: I've stopped looking I'm saner for it. I'm sure once a new book comes out I'll be looking all over again.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but But this is for a different publisher?
1: Yeah, this is for Ten Speed
0: Okay, great. So they'll they have it's some great. they have some apparatus behind them.
1: Yes, they do. And they're a great publisher. I'm really happy to be with them.
0: That's really exciting.
1: I haven't said that since Harcourt. Well, that's great. That was great. You've arrived. I've arrived. And
0: app. and will you be doing a tour and
1: we, I I suppose I will. Yeah. I'm going to be doing a tour.
0: I mean, wouldn't it be totally... I have no na- idea what I'm doing would, yet. It would be so logical for you to do tastings in various cities and sign books and...
1: Great. Um, and I have to, like, sit down and figure out what kind of things I'm going to be doing. Um, whether they have any ideas, whether it's all on me. Uh, they have a particular way of doing their um, promotion. So I'll find out. Yeah. But it'll be fun. It's always fun to be on the road. And see people, and see like who reads me, and I'd like to go. To, I'm going to go to places that I never go to. Not necessarily, sorry, Florida, but I don't necessarily want to go. But I'm really curious what sure. are, what's going on in Florida. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, so I'll do Florida. I'll do Texas. Maybe I'll finally get down to Charlottesville. Sure, that'd be exciting. Yeah, I'm going to try to go to some of the places that are not the likely places. I had a great time going to Detroit mm-hmm. and Arbor. Rhode Island, yeah, they are great places outside of New York and
0: there are, and that California. well, that kind of ties into something I wanted to include in this, which is uh, because not just the industry, but the the demand side has ex- just exploded, even in the last two years. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you and I have known each other for more like five or six, I would say, but but the. The landscape has just changed so dramatically that all these secondary and tertiary cities around this country—I I expect it'll be super interesting for you to see just how much supply there is, how many wine bars and restaurants are carrying right. the good stuff.
1: And there's a lot of competition for the good stuff. Yeah, there and is. That is there tough.
0: Is. Yeah, I, I know. And like people like Ross and Byron, and you know, they're they're kind of running around like crazy trying to satisfy all these new markets. Right. Um, and that's obviously putting pressure on the supply side. So you have right. to worry a little bit that people oh, are starting cheating and and.
1: I, you know it's, it's, a, it's a thing you know I find a wine that I really want and like do I get what I need first before I write about it mm. sorry it's kind of
0: true sock away a couple cases
1: yeah
2: absolutely. it's
1: true or like I taste it and if I'm not if you're not on it as a buyer because you know for my the newsletter I've got a buying club yeah and if I'm not on it right away all of a sudden sorry Alice it's gone I said I only need four cases yeah yeah you know, give it to me no, no, I mean, God. that
0: happens. I know uh, how quickly some of this stuff goes. You know, you'll see somebody will post, you know, the new whatever is in, and pow, two days later, it's gone.
1: And a lot of time, it is complete and utter Instagram hype.
0: Yep. Well, that's what. so that's what that's I wanted to talk to you about. Like, how now in kind of natural wine America 2.0, let's say, uh-huh. um, where it's a fully realized thing in most markets, or certainly a lot of them, um, obviously you have all kinds of inside information and you get to go to tastings and you can, um, certainly if you, even if you can't jump on the two cases that you want, you can at least understand the product. How do you now navigate this crazy new giant mm. hype driven thing where people like, you know, where Susikaru gets blown up and becomes, you know, unattainable overnight.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, just cause of that one guy with that one show.
1: Right. That one guy, um, It is, it took a long time for celebrity culture to reach wine. Yeah. And natural wine, and it really sucks. (laughs) I mean, it sucks. And it's one reason that I feel like, okay, I've done this wine writing thing, I'm out of here. Can I just get out of wine? I don't like it. I'm a writer, I'm not a celebrity. I don't want to make myself a celebrity. Uh, And it's weird seeing all these people who are trying to turn themselves into little Instagram stars. I find it quite. Frankly, um, off-putting.
0: Yeah,
1: I was going to use a stronger word, but you can use strong words here. Um, but but on the other hand, I find about things that I'm curious about that I want to drink. Um, that I'm glad that oh they're in the this it's in the country. Um, it's useful for research, but I and mostly it is the wine importers that are. Kind of uh, most guilty of hype, and yeah. it really is a sales tool. Yeah. And depending how hip you are and how great you produce it, and like, and you know, it's a good sales tool, but it's just, it promotes a shallowness of drinkers, a shallowness amongst wine directors who want the new hot thing. It's no different from I'm buying on points. Hmm. You're just like buying on Instagram. Yeah, you're buying on Instagram. Likes. So. Yeah, in, you know, Instagram sommeliers, you know, there's Instagram wine directors. It just, well, I saw so-and-so. It's good, cool wine, right? A uh, so-and-so liked it, so. Yeah. I am pretty careful about what I post. Mm-hmm. I, if it's an old wine, I might post some really cool old wine that I had. Sure. But very rarely will I post a new one on Instagram. I just don't want to do that.
0: You don't want to feed I, it feed into the hype.
1: No, and I I save my wine recommendations for the newsletter. Yeah. That's it's like basically it is, you know, a dedicated group to me and they can have my wine recommendations. Right. I'm not giving it away.
0: No. No, nor should you. Yeah. So no, I mean, you post about dinner parties and to people that you're that's, with. and yeah. that's because That puts the social in social media, you know, not the marketing.
1: Yeah. You Everyone can post about your have. books. Yeah, I do. I Hey, I, I post about my books. I post about the newsletter article that I wrote. I mean, so it is certainly a marketing tool.
0: Sure. Well, I think one of the things about idealism is that you can live your life a certain way according to the principles that you hold dear, and that you can spread the word and you can... You can proselytize about this style of winemaking and, and how good it is for human and planet alike. But necessarily a whole bunch of morons are going to jump on that bandwagon and ruin it for you.
1: Right. I think unless that's what we you, have now. Right. Unless
0: you just ignore them. you kind of right. There's a point where you just sort of have to say this is for the greater good, yeah. and these are not my friends, and uh, they may be drinking up the stuff that I wish I could get my hands on. Yeah. But I guess I just have to go find a new thing. And so that's... Is that sort of roughly where you find yourself now?
1: Oh, yeah, totally. And so, yes. You know, the... The time for me to get my hands on any Auvernois, done, over. So, um... I remember when Claude Jard like, hit social media. Yeah. And all of a sudden, or... Um... Fifferling hit social media, yeah. and then all of a sudden it was like... But... You know those people are just looking for the latest flash in the pan. Kind of don't have any use for it. Fashion victims.
0: It's, it becomes an it's just it's an accessory, right? It's, it's the thing accessory. you must be seen
1: yeah. drinking, right? Yeah.
0: And I've found, like for example, you know, good agao is you know, it's good stuff. But those labels are so recognizable. They're kind of like. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to say anything unkind because it's it's, it's quality, right? And they're nice people, but it's so recognizable that I've it's kind of.
1: It's a marketing coup.
0: It's brilliant, and you because you can see it in somebody's Instagram. You can see them at the table, and it's got the face on it, right? right. And it's it becomes this signifier of virtue and taste and all this other yeah. stuff, right? So okay. instead of being dripped out with gold or whatever, you just you've got the
2: right.
0: you know this brand next to you, but it's mm. it's it's very clever. It's insidious. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But there's certain labels that you can spot on someone else's phone across a dinner table and say, oh, yeah.
1: It's important. How do you differentiate yourself from it? But it's, now you've got Instagram <laughs> yeah, to help you.
0: So I have one more question. Um, how has your drinking changed your cooking?
1: Huh. Well, that's a very pure de- question.
0: Decade, it's a very me question, it is, over the last 10 years or so.
1: Oh, I, I I'm sorry to... Disappoint? It hasn't at all. No. Because I um, I drink what I want. I don't worry about wine pairing. The only thing that I worry about is I don't want to kill the wine that I want to drink that night. Right. Um,
0: so you cook the the food follows the wine
1: for you. Right. I happen to have a palate that is. Oh, you know this because I've been mean at your house. Love spicy food. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't changed that because of wine drinking. Right. Um, I think that I... It's just my... You, I don't think that it's changed, but if anything, that my cooking has become much more natural. I've never been a processed food eater, but yeah. even that has become much more basic, and I tend towards... Simple methods of cooking mm-hmm. and then a lot of spicing
0: a lot of spicing <laughs> in particular like do you do a lot of Indian or Ethiopian or Mexican or Thai places that are
1: you know um,
0: that enjoy the chili
1: well there there are a couple of things from Georgia that I use a lot of mm-hmm. um, and spanetti salt. I just brought back some uh, me spice from Chile that I'm using a lot of
0: what's that uh-huh.
1: That jar with the red stuff. This one? It's mapuchin. Um, so it's it's a little bit like smoked paprika.
2: This is right. from
1: from, yeah, from. Mm-hmm. and so it's it's cumin. Mm-hmm. Which, um so it's cumin and it's the goat horn peppers that are smoked. That's delicious. It's delicious.
0: Oh man, I'd put this on everything. Yeah. <laughs> You can't
1: get it here.
0: No, well, I, um, I could make it. I mean, I have a lot of fermented chili powder at home. So.
1: Yeah, actually, and your fermented chili this The harissa? That was yeah. great.
0: I, I have... Um, it's on my list it's to make you a big old jar of harissa. Yes! I, I just haven't gotten to that it. That was
1: so... That was the best harissa I've ever had. Wow, thank you. That was so good. So, um, Emma, yeah, I like a love hot sauces, and I just kind of... Um, Whatever. No, it, it hasn't changed. It has just become way more seasonal mm-hmm. because um, even though I have, I'm not willing to give up, even in the winter.
2: Yeah. little. I mean, guilty little pleasures, guys, right?
1: And, you know, because it's just for the wetness. and uh, I'm, I'm holding little tiny cherry tomatoes. Yeah. Hey, look,
0: as guilty pleasures go, those are pretty... Uh, yeah. Mild. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, that's about it. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, my wife bought some hothouse tomatoes the other day You're too for exactly the same service. reason. You just want to feel the pop, the acidity. You
1: need, you need it. I usually, I for that, I will go to um, uh, persimmons. Mm-hmm. That will be my tomato substitute in the winter, which is also not exactly local. No, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> but. But better than uh, the tomatoes. But you kind of need something with bagels and lox.
0: Yeah, you do. You do. You need that. Yeah, it's true.
1: You do. I can't imagine it without it. So. All
0: right. Well, thank you for talking to me. <laughs> You're welcome. And letting fun. me into your home. Alice Firing. She's alice.firing on Instagram. Her website is thefiringline.com. She's Alice Firing on Twitter. Her most recent book is The Dirty Guide to Wine. I am cookblog on Instagram, acookblog.com. The website for this is cookpod.net. Theme music by my son Milo, smiloby.com. And remember, the best bottle of wine you ever drank
2: still ended up in the toilet.